Hi, my name is Tim Bauma, and this is Definitely Identity. Definitely Identity is about all things identity. In this podcast, I will be talking to people about the interesting things that are happening in the world of identity, both in public and private sector, in the country and around the world. Uh, welcome to episode 15 of Definitely Identity. Today's interview is with Tyken, a Dutch company involved in the self-sovereign identity space. And I've got uh, two of the co-founders here, uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Snook and Khalid Maliki. So um, how about you introduce yourself and your respective backgrounds? So I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you first, uh, Jimmy, and then we'll go to Khalid. Sure thing. Uh, thank you, Tim. Uh, so I'm Jimmy, one of the co-founders of Tycon. Um, I focus mainly on the business side. Before here, before uh, co-founding Tycon, I had another uh, startup which I closed down after two years. Was um, fitness related, uh, and before that, I was actually uh, a musician, uh, which uh, coincidentally uh, actually uh, Khalid happened to be as well. So Khalid Maliki, one of the co-founders of Tycon. I mainly focus on the daily. T- Day operations of Tycon um, have an extensive background in UX design. Uh, worked for the Dutch government for a while, and then for some multinationals. Actually, you know, f- a few years before Tycon, I went. I wanted to do something within the social impact corner, and then you know, uh, actually, this was the, this this was a, a match made in heaven. So, uh, and the rest is history. I'm pretty excited to inter- interview you folks, and uh, like I've been following you uh, not only on Twitter but also through the various in- industry forums and on just reading like your blog entries on the web on on the website and all the good stuff that you're doing. But before we get into that, where does the the name Tycon come from? <laughs> I I think. Uh... I, I think at some point the reasoning we gave um, was based on tyke, a pigeon. Uh, it was spelled T-Y-K-E, tyke, a pigeon in World War II who got the first Medal of Honor for passing messages between uh, different camps. Um, but <laughs> I think that was more of a uh, backwards reasoning. I think I think the reason because it just sounds so cool at that time, and uh, we get stuck to it, and uh, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's actually the the history of Psychic. I love the name. I love uh, uh, four letter acronyms that have no like no intrinsic meaning because it's basically it carves out a mental space uh, in your mind saying, okay, Tycan. It doesn't actually stand for anything per se, like the acronym. But as you said, you've got a, a bit of a backstory, whether you made it up beforehand or afterhand. But uh, I think what it really does, it gives you a good sense of identity. And um, with with that, may, maybe give me a um, a background of what the mission of Tycan is, what its purpose, and you, you you talked about it just briefly in your in your respective introductions on what. What changes do you want to make or what differences do you want to make? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, so, so the main purpose of Tycan was to move towards a place of uh, equal opportunity for all. Uh, currently, uh, you know, uh, we aren't. <laughs> and not just talking about the uh, different uh, social tensions that we still see in, um, in the US and also in Europe, Canada, but also from the fact that over 1 billion people don't have identifying documentation and do not have access to any of the same level 
of uh, healthcare, education um, that that we enjoy. And of course, it's uh, it, it's it's great to exert yourself for um, optimizing the systems that we have here now, but. In the end, you know, we're moving so fast, and especially with uh, with these types of technologies, it's very easy to forget that there are people who are, you know, almost a, a decade behind in, in some cases, and people who have never had anything close to the, the most basic uh, of, of amenities and, and services. So for us, um, starting Tycan was mainly to create impact for those who have been left at the edges of society um those who are uh, who who have been living there for for all their lives you know those who uh, have never have gotten to enjoy um having a birth certificate or a passport um and who struggle with that as a result and this includes um refugees um forcibly displaced people uh, so that that was our starting point uh, and that primarily those are the people that we want to uh, be creating impact for. I think, yes, yeah, since the inception of Tycan, Tycan is mainly a collection of background stories where, um, I mean, the co-founders uh, had different uh, challenges in their lives. And we see that, you know, uh, through our different stories and our challenges that we have uh, encountered in our lives. And, and mainly the topic that really resonates with everyone is, of course, identity. Um, we, have, we have seen that in a wide spectrum, you know, from just, you know, a, a, a citizen in a, in a Western country to a refugee, you know, fleeing uh, his, his beloved country because of political or, or natural disasters. And, you know, for, for me as well, it, this, you know, firsthand, it resonated with, with my own story because my mother used to have, before she passed away, she, she had like, you know, birth, two birthdays because at that time she, um, in Morocco, for example, we didn't have any uh, government registries. So later on when they, these were founded, uh, they couldn't really give an accurate birth date. should just, you know, chose one, you know, just pick one. And that's, 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 that's what gave them a lot of struggle, you know, when it comes to access to services, when it comes to healthcare, education, etc. So later on, when my mother, tra- you know, moved to the Netherlands, and here actually, this is my where, I, where I'm born as well, I, I had to convince different institutions that I'm talking, because she had two, she had two birthdays, you know, it's very weird. And I had to convince all the different institutions that I'm talking about the same person here. And then, and then the whole refugee story came along and I saw like this is like a massive problem you know everywhere so it it's it you know it really uh, resonated with my own small story but uh, since I wanted to do something in tech and, and something where I can you know uh, you know contribute to uh, first of all I have to say like living in a country like Canada we exactly. take a lot of things for granted we just assume that our existence is actually registered and that we uh, we actually exist. Similar to your mother's story, my, my, my parents-in-law, they're from Quebec, and actually their, their um, birth dates on their passports are actually from their, the date of their baptismal certificate. So there's a discrepancy there. So you even, you even find that here in uh, Canada, too, that you have these type of discrepancies. And, and I, I would say it just ends up being more of an inconvenience here in uh, in, a, in the Canadian context. But I, I would say probably in the refugee context, it could be uh, 
difference between between life life and death and i think um that is something that um we especially in the western societies kind of take for granted or don't view it as a like as a as as a big problem or we just recognize it more as a a problem of inconvenience but when you get as you said like those billion people if you will uh, it's a completely different situation and um personally it's really uh, i don't want to pretend that i can even relate to that situation but i at least i can say that i'm aware of it and really appreciative of folks like you looking at this in a more concerted way and actually focusing on trying to bring solutions that are going to help uh, these individuals i know that like on your website you talk about a, a pilot project that you did in uh, uh, Turkey with uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the UN uh, Development Program. Can you can you uh, take us through that and and uh, describe what you did with that uh, pilot project and how that's evolved or evolving into the the products or the services sure. that you're developing? I think also it it links on to what you just said that we cannot even imagine and often take for granted. You know how how good we have it uh, because it was actually in the uh, the research stage for this pilot, uh, where uh, we we spent close to a month in Turkey, and speaking with you know, the people on the ground floor, you know, from the UN and and people from the government, but especially yeah. the refugees themselves, and hearing their stories, it was it, it's <laughs> it's beyond heartbreaking. And, and actually, like every time. I came back, I felt broken just because of how large the gap is between us and, and what these people have been through. And that, you know, there's a lot of things we can know, you know, we can we can read about it, we can hear about it on the news, but we'll never be able to understand what it's like to go through that. Uh, you know, we, we met people whose children were working in textile factories uh, for maybe 30 euros a month. And, you know, the, the, like eight, eight year old, 10 year old children uh, just to barely make ends meet. And it, yeah, it, it's beyond anything that, that we could think about on a daily basis, uh, you know, yeah. lest we, we, we lose our minds, you know, if, if you have to think about that every day. Exactly. Uh, but these people are living it, you know, <laughs> they, they are living it on a, on a day by day basis. Um, but that, that did show us a lot, um, in, in terms of also our assumptions, you know, what is important, uh, what, what in, in these situations, what these people actually value, what they care about. And within the first couple of weeks, a lot of our initial assumptions were thrown out the window. Uh, you know, we know that there was a temporary protection card that, um, uh, that they had to carry and it was plastic and uh, they have to fold it up awkwardly and they have to every time they want to move to a yeah. different city they have to go to a special location and they have to get it stamped and they have to get it updated so we thought okay that's a great low-hanging fruit for us to you know just digitize that and, and then we got there and you know it turns out that that's the least of their worries you know that they just fold up that thing and you know whatever uh, put it in their pocket and they that that wasn't the least of their uh, that was the least of their worries, uh, and then we we saw that um, refugee employability actually was a much larger issue uh, in the sense that there are quite a bit of quite a few barriers to 
to becoming employed as a, as a refugee in Turkey. And one of those barriers is language. And then another was the work permits. So what's happening is that in order for any sort of company, institution to hire refugees, they have to, the, the employer needs to apply for a work permit for the refugee. And this is a quite a cumbersome process that they often pass off to an accountant. And the way that works is that they then have to give all their, their uh, company government portal login credentials to their accountant, who then has to go to the specific section of that portal and fills out all the information to uh, apply for this work permit and the accountant charges for this. And what then often happens is that these charges are then often illegally passed on to the refugee alongside the cost for social security and income tax. So what's happening is that refugees, once they actually do get a proper job that's above the table, so to speak, they get less money than they would if they would do it off the table or under the table. And because because these employees, they, they pass on all those costs and they would end up with next to nothing. So we realized that, okay, maybe this whole identity uh, issue that we wanted to solve for the refugees, maybe it doesn't even start with the refugees. Maybe we have to look at these employers. And maybe if we make this uh, work permit application process easier, then the, the after effect of that is that it suddenly it becomes easier to employ refugees and refugee employability will go up. So without initially even looking at the ref- refugees themselves in, in terms of you know digitizing any credentials or whatever, they would enjoy the major benefits of it. And that is where we started uh, with this pilot. You're touching on what I view as the long tail of problems that happen after or before digital identity. And sometimes, uh, myself included, we, we focused focus on digital identity to the exclusion of all those other things about like qualifications, uh, credentials, etc. And those are the things that make the real difference. And identity is a, is a key enabler, or digital identity is a key enabler, but it's only a very small piece of the puzzle. And, and what you're describing, and I think that's something we constantly have to remind ourselves that digital identity is just like an enabler. It's a catalyst and it, it unlocks or removes the barrier of all these things leading up to or happening after once someone knows who you are. Like the question sometimes of who you are uh, doesn't really matter that much because you're presenting yourselves before an employer and you're right there. You know, we know exactly who you are. You're telling us your name. That's not the primary concern because I know you're going to be here tomorrow. The primary concern is, are you actually qualified for this job? Do you actually have the proper work permits? And what, what your name is, is uh, sometimes a vastly uh, secondary uh, uh, concern to the employer. And as you said, then all those back-end processes of actually have, having to check things and doing it, like you said, handing it off to the accountant, who then probably has, uh, you know, I would say probably not the strongest verification techniques to um to verify like qualifications, for example, and have to risk manage it. And then hence all the costs and also the potential biases that get introduced because those processes are really, really hard. So it's really neat to see that 
that's what you were learning on, on, on the ground, so to speak. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is not just an uh, issue of um, getting rid of inconvenience or saying exactly who I am. It's about uh, enabling myself or enabling an individual to get access to all those uh, functions of society that, that you need to actually be valued and to uh, and something that we need to function, function in society. And uh, as you said, uh, you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing that on the ground. The next, next question is like, uh, you've clearly positioned yourself in the space of self-sovereign identity. And I'm a big fan of the concepts as well. <laughs> um, you know, there's some discussion about the label, if that's a label or not. And I, I find myself moving away from that term. Like, I, I, you know, I don't get too hung up on terminology. I'm more concerned about the the concepts behind the terminology. And things will change over time. But given that, regardless of the label, like SSI, why do you think it's different or better? And what is... Um, Give, give me your perspective on what you see the potential and the opportunities are with SSI. And, and not to fall into repetition in your uh, great podcast with Kalia. Uh, and to any listeners, I, I'd recommend you check that one out uh, where Tim and uh, Kalia go in on the topic of self-sovereign identity. For me, it's mainly surrounding higher control of and ownership of, of personal data and how that's used, how that's processed. I agree that the name self-sovereign identity isn't ideal. Uh, we see quite a few clashes with that. I, I, I'm afraid somewhere it might be too late to change it just because uh, enough people have heard the term self-sovereign identity now that it might not die anymore. So uh, we've kind of leaned into it because a lot of people also assume there's you know this, this uh, self-attested part that we just all say, okay, I know Tim, uh, you know, Tim knows me and uh, I know my mom and that is enough and we don't need governments anymore. We don't need, um, that, that's kind of the extreme end. But I think it's uh, a, a good move in the right direction of moving away from all these siloed models of identification and uh, also paper-based uh, models because even, you know, th there's a lot of paper processes still, but even our digital processes are paper-based. And I think also the whole point about SSI is kind of changing those mental models of how we uh, look at identity and how we look at our part in it ourselves in, in owning our data and owning these relationships. Um, there's a, a funny uh, story in how I explain how SSI can be, uh, what, what it would look like in, in sort of processes in our day-to-day in our -day lives. My uh, partner is from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And she moved here to the Netherlands uh, to live with me. And I had to apply for a partner visa, which meant that she needed to get a lot of documents uh, from Canada and she had to get it legalized. She needed her passport, her previous marriage certificate, divorce certificate, uh, the birth certificate, which she had to get at Vital Statistics, um, which is a whole nother story because that also took very long and barely got it on time before she got on a flight. Then I needed to get my, uh, my passport. I needed to call it to attest to me working at Tycan. I needed a, a salary slip from uh, from our accountants for 12 months back. Um, and then even then, we still needed a, a certificate of non-impediment to marriage abroad, which you can only get from the Canadian government. Now, 
Khaled told me that if uh, she would have been Moroccan, we would have had a big problem um, because that would have meant that she would have she would have had to fly back to Morocco and go back to the city where she was born and apply for that certificate. But luckily, because the uh, the relationships between Canada and the Netherlands are quite strong and uh, it's the uh, digital infrastructure is quite advanced and I, I guess politically as well, she was able to go to the embassy and get a statement on lieu of a certificate of a non-impediment to marriage abroad. And she had to pay for it. She had to go there to the embassy. And then I had to dump all that into a portal online and fill out a bunch of other stuff and proof of our relationship. <laughs> Long story short, I, <laughs> I explained her as does I and her takeaway was oh so I could have just done that from my phone <laughs> I was like yeah well essentially essentially yes <laughs> and you wouldn't have had to you know go all the way back to small town Manitoba for vital statistics to get your birth certificate legalized and go to the embassy to and yes you could have just all done that and online without me having to go through a portal where uh, a desk clerk is going to look at our whole life uh, and our, our whole life in terms of financials and, and identity information. And that would have just been processed like that. So that is a, a way for me to, to kind of visualize how this could reduce friction and that it's not just about the point of privacy, which of course is very important that it's one of the, the largest building block of SSI is a higher focus on privacy. And, and in some cases, perhaps almost a purist uh, way, which is 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 good. It's very. I feel like it's quite unnuanced uh, right now. But that does mean that it 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 makes us look at a higher standard and and try to live up to that standard. Uh, from you know the status quo is quite far away from that. So so in that case, I'm a I'm a big fan. But also that that degree of uh, reducing friction. Uh, that to me is a is a huge uh, point. Yeah, at least in my in my um, in my case, uh, Jimmy is that uh, not being able to get approved from a government institution, in this case, like Morocco, for example, is is always a good excuse to fly back, you know, and join enjoy the sun uh, for a few days, and then you know get the credential, come back. But th- then then you know, COVID nineteen stops by, passes by, and then you have a really a big issue because then there is no institution that can issue such a uh, credential. And then it becomes more you know, challenging, especially for those people that are uh, on the verge of society. Just to elaborate on what for me SSI means is, I do agree with you, uh, Tim, I, 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 I really hate the, the term, term terminology, and, uh, and, but I think it's, the, it's like the, the concept comes you know, the closest to a real life situation where where our mental models and our dynamics and interactions are, you know, are mimicking in how we interact in our day to day lives. That's kind of, you know, we give each other a handshake before, you know, conducting any tr- transactions. So we are creating a very secure, trusted, you know, channel between the two people that's standing uh, in front of each other, you know, and that's kind of, and then we start, you know, giving some vulnerable, uh, uh, like uh, sensitive information about ourselves or, you know, uh, and, and that for me, SSI brings that really close to how our mental models and how our uh, interaction work in, in, in real life. My, my heart rate was rising as Jimmy was going through his <laughs> scenario there because uh, it, 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 
it's um, the way I like to describe it, like over the last 50, 60 or even 100 years, there's been huge advances in telecommunication technologies and computational technology, but the technology of trust is still the same as, as it's been for the last millennia, if you will. It's basically stuff that's printed on paper. And I, I always say paper is still the killer app for trust. And um, and w once you get this new mental model in your mind and say, well, this is how we did it. Like for thousands of years, we had credentials that we presented and you know, there was maybe a wax seal or it was printed on uh, parchment or, you know, there was some special artwork on there that was uh, not um, easily counterfeited. And you realize that those mechanisms are pretty yeah. much the same. But once you got into the digital world, they were entirely absent. And then you still had to fall back on the on the on the paper uh, paper aspect or the physical substrate aspect of it. And nobody really uh, addressed the trust problem. You know, it was focused, as I said, on better communication and better better computation. But now, once you once you get this model in your mind of, you know, and I would say self-sovereign identity, the, the biggest contribution to the field that it has done, um, uh, for me specifically, yeah. it's mm -hmm. enabled me to rethink the problem in an entirely different way. So I look at it in terms of how, how, do, I, how do I get something witnessed properly? How do I get something signed properly? So someone might not trust me per se, but they trust the fact that the government of Canada said something about me and I'm the one that's presenting that stuff about me, not someone else. And when you start conceptualizing the problem that way and you say, okay, if you start looking at it that way, uh, you know, the traditional architectures typically had, um, it was either carried on a piece of paper, that was the, the, the decentralized technology, um, but then kind of what stepped in there were these centralized databases and these huge large-scale administrative systems, and they kind of did the job. But then we uh, kind of saw things go down the surveillance track and the, you know, the uh, lack of privacy track. But now I feel like there's a new architecture in place that we can actually start going back to those old ways that we used to do like for millennia before all these computers and uh, communication technologies arrived on the scene. And uh, I think it's gonna take uh, quite a generation, uh, it's gonna take a generation of solutions to, to work this through. Cause I think um, we, we, we equate, uh, uh, especially in governments, uh, we equate mm -hmm. um, innovation with building large administrative <laughs> systems. And we're, we're, we're trying to say that maybe this is not the way this is not the way to do things, and we have to look at the um, the problem differently. And I think what what I'd like to do is just talk about your 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 platform that you're developing, a Anna. I remember seeing a demo. I think it was on YouTube, and I went, "Wow, that's great!" Like I totally got what you were trying to do, and I was totally excited about it. Um, I'm not going to give justice describing it, uh, so I'll, I'll, ha I'll hand it over to either you or Jimmy Clid or Clid that want to uh, talk about the platform that you're building and um, how you see that um, fitting into like the context that you're working in. Yeah, I think maybe it's good if Khaled talks about uh, a bit further on. So I, <laughs> I talked about the leading up and the research phase kind of towards the, the pilot, uh, but then the, the demo that you saw uh, was also born out of that uh, pilot, at least in terms of uh, user flow. So I think it, it's good if, if Khaled could talk a bit about 
you know, the, the point of actually doing the pilot and, yeah, and what it yeah, was used course. for um, and who was involved. So basically, you know, when we wanted to build to build this uh, this platform called Anna. Um, by the way, Anna is not only a name; it stands also for the word came from Arabic, which is actually me. So it's uh, I who am uh, you know uh, controlling my own data. Uh, and then, you know, later it, it really became uh, kind of a, uh, a persona within within our platform. So we wanted really to, you know, of course, our first iterations are still, you know, based on, on smartphone uh, application, uh, native app that, you know, uh, is, is, is actually not different from other wallets that already exist in the market. But we wanted to make it as intuitive and uh, and, and easy as possible. And while we are doing our, um, you know, conducting the research in Turkey on the ground and discussing with people like, like, uh, how do you interact with, uh, with apps, with smartphones, what kind of apps do you use in day-to-day life? And we, we found that the conversational apps are the most popular because they're, that's like their main source of information. Uh, for example, you know, they're contributing to uh, WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, and we saw that that kind of intuitive designs are making more sense to these population, but also to, to the general public. It's, it's like, you know, I want to have a kind of someone talking to me. As I told you, like, you know, in real life, we, the mental model is I'm building trust with someone before exchanging any type of sensitive data or, or personal information. So we wanted to mimic that in, into our uh, user experience. And we did that uh, in our first iteration with the Anna platform in, in Turkey. So basically, we want to mimic the user experience of, you know, what we are used to in, like in, in, in those uh, conversational apps uh, with, with people. Uh, the, the first iteration we landed there is, is, you know, just, you know, onboarding process through an app where, where someone, you know, could just, you know, prove that who he is. Uh, and then, and then a platform where a government institution, a, a chamber of commerce, in this in this uh, in this uh, situation, uh, in Turkey, uh, issuing a proof that you own a business, and that was really powerful for 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 the, the refugees and the entrepreneurs there, because for them is, for them it's like the first time they don't have to leave the comfort or their home or where they stay, uh, because they just you know get a credential issued to them while not having. Uh, to travel for it and really one of the uh, statements and quotes was like you know t- istanbul is a big city it, it's becoming crowded uh, every, you know more day by day so this this really you know saves me a lot of hassle money and and effort um and uh, of course there are a lot of learnings we took from from the pilot uh, which we will use for a second iteration and yeah, that's something we are, again, we're bringing back to the Netherlands, you know, and iterate on it and trying to improve that in our uh, user experience for, for general, general use cases where, where also this kind of mental models could be applied. What jumped out at me was you had this notion of Anna and the users actually developing a trust relationship with the platform, not necessarily the issuers behind the platform. And, and quite frankly, uh, that's a different mental model i would say in western society we're 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 more tending towards like depersonalizing saying this is a piece of paper that you have to fill out and you have to give to this agency and you try to take the humanity out to take the trust out of it and try to make it standardized on a form but it it sounds like what you're doing is as you said you've 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 got anna you're, you're you're personifying it or anthropomorphizing it and enabling the individual to build trust with that agent that's acting on their behalf and they're interacting it 
they almost become, you know, the uh, you know their their tr their trusted agent to, to deal with uh, gov government agencies, if you will, or any 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 interaction. That's that exactly the, the Does idea. That sound. <laughs> did I, did I pick up on that right? Yeah, we we've been discussing that quite a bit on how also to make the user feel uh, more comfortable. Uh, that's why. Uh, we gave the platform a name uh, that, you know, it, it reflects uh, me as an identity owner, but it's also Anna, you know, it's it's, a, it's nice on the ears and makes you feel comfortable too. If, if you sp if you anthropomorphize it and, and tell you, oh, oh, Anna, she is taking care of it. You know, Anna is, is it, it, it makes the user feel a bit more comfortable as well, which is also in the research that we did an essential part of trust, which we're, we're still iterating on as well. Yeah, but yeah. I think at, at some point you already mentioned this, uh, Tim, is that, you know, there is a trust issue. And especially when you are, you know, you have, I mean, you lost everything. And, and the only thing you still have to lose is giving any sensitive data to an un, a party which you don't know for, you know, vulnerable populations like refugees. So you need really to, to come up with, uh, ways, you know, that kind of humanizes the, the processes and, you know, make them comfortable, at least, you know, if they don't have to trust you 100%, they know a real person talking to them. When you're talking about trust, we're starting to see some interesting evolution of the issues. Like uh, in, in a place like Canada or North America, we don't have to worry about it. We, we have high trust in our government. We have, tr we have high trust in our uh, government officials. But that may not be the case in other um, parts of the world. And so an individual may want to place their trust in like a platform first, for example, Anna, amongst other, other platforms before they put trust into like a government uh, department or agency. And um, they may want to interact with that platform, platform first before they actually say, hey, I'm going to provide this information to apply for a job or to apply for a benefit. And um, I don't think we'll be able to get into like that super detail in this um, uh, podcast, but I think you're touching upon the dynamics of some of these evolving trust issues, especially when you're dealing with um, individuals that may not have, that are existing in a state context that they're comfortable with. And um, so you may be stepping in with your platform and providing uh, a sense of assurance or a capability that otherwise they would not get from their government, exactly. yeah. whether it be local or national. If I can relate in, in a limited sense, um, and again, I, I don't even know if I'll put this part of the podcast. So I remember my wife and I, we traveled, we went to Morocco uh, last year and uh, we uh, traveled around the country. So we, we did one of these tours, there was about 15 of us and we literally went everywhere, went um like we were in uh, Casablanca, we went to Marrakesh, we went to the, we took like a 14 hour drive to get to the edge of the Sahara. And what really struck me, like we, we rented this, like these rovers and literally drove out in the middle of the desert to have tea with the nomads. And I had my phone, I remember driving, we were driving out there and there's nothing except a mobile data tower. <laughs> And then when we get to this uh, little village, it's like, hey, I got four bars here and I got pretty good uh, bandwidth. And um, um, and then then it then it hit me that, wow, you know, I could do I, I could work from here. Like the bandwidth is sufficient that I, I could actually communicate. I could like set up office and I'd be fine. Like if I had a solar panel, I'd be perfectly fine. And then I then I then I realized that 
how incredibly empowering these devices will be that you would be able to be networked with the rest of the world. Again, we talked about the communication and uh, the computational power, but if you can build in the trust, it really wouldn't matter where you are within the world. And then also you, you as being an individual that lives in a, in, in a village, if you've been provided um, not only your, your, your papers, your, your credentials, but also like a cryptocurrency as well that you, you could have and hold on a, on a hardware device, for example, and only use it at, when absolutely necessary. Um, it, it's incredibly empowering. And I think there's a huge potential, especially for the, um, in other parts of the world, to leapfrog some of these conceptions, conceptions that we have in uh, our own countries. Like we, as I said, we seem to have assumptions that we have to build these large scale administrative systems. They have to be these huge monopoly providers. But now we have the capability of leapfrogging those capabilities with an entirely new um, uh, uh, digital infrastructure. So that's why I'm really excited about this because I, I, I see there's a total potential for changing the game beyond beyond the rhetoric. It actually enables the individual to have, you know, those documents, like, as you said earlier in the, in the podcast, people that had that paper, piece of paper folded up in their pocket. Um, now they could actually have it like protected by Anna, for example, and bring it out when they need to, and nobody can take it away from them. Yeah, exactly. That, that's that's one of the goals. And it's, it's funny that you say that about um, kind of being surprised by that tower, is that also a lot of people are surprised about the uh, smartphone penetration amongst refugees. Uh, so the, there seems to be this persistent, this persistent view of refugees as them having, you know, carrying around old Nokia phones, you know, feature phones uh, from 20 years ago. Well, actually, there's a, a huge uh, smartphone penetration among at least the Syrian refugee population that, you know, families have uh, iPads and they have iPhone uh, 6s, 7s and, and up. It's, it's an important focus of us uh, going forward that SSI isn't just available on smartphones. And that's something that we've been dedicating ourselves to as well in, in terms yeah. of a feature phone uh, penetration or availability. But it's it's surprising to a lot of people that smartphones are quite ubiquitous uh, amongst refugee populations. Oh, that totally hit home when I was in Morocco. I brought I brought my um, I, I have a work phone. I left it at home, but I, I brought my uh, my personal phone, Android phone. And with my existing plan, they said, hey, you can actually do roaming for like, um, you know, so many megabytes per day. It's only going to cost you like 13 bucks a day. And I went, OK, well, that sounds kind of expensive. So when I got to Casablanca, I went to like one of these um, little shops, I think it was Orange. And I bought like a SIM for $20 and had like 13 gigs for like two weeks. Yeah. And so the, connect- the, connectivi- the connectivity was like uh, totally uh, the 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 expense was at an order of magnitude lower than what I expected to spend, and a, as you as you said, the, the the smartphones are absolutely everywhere, and uh, that's not the issue. And I remember I was at a workshop, a refugee workshop um, um, here in uh, Canada, um, and I remember one of the con- comments that jumped out at me. One of the key priorities for the the, the camps was. <clears throat> Water and Wi-Fi. Those are the two top priorities: was to have water, but then to, but then to have Wi-Fi, and that was a key priority. So I think you can just assume that this technology is uh, uh, going to be there, 
And again, some people say, well, you're focusing too much on the technology. You should focus on, you know, the policy and the legal aspect. Yes, but it has to be, it, it's, it's a complementary um, uh, situation here. You need, you, you, need, you need to focus on both. And if we do this right, and um, the way that I've been describing it with uh, the folks that I work with, if we do this right with whatever solutions like ANA or self-sovereign identity or other platforms, we take the technology out of trust, and then we can we can actually focus on the issue of trust as it should be. That was this issued by an authority that we recognize? Was this something that was issued to you and you only? Uh, has is it the same as what the issuer provided? Um, can I actually trust it at face value? And uh, the only solution to date that really enables that to any degree is like paper. And um, and now I, I am seeing is that with what you're doing and with these newer architectures, um, uh, we now have a new way of uh, enabling uh, trust irrespective of the apps, irrespective of the platforms and irrespective of, you know, the infrastructure providers that control those platforms. So it's a total game changer. Um, that I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, as are we. And, and we see, I, I mean, what, what excites me about SSI too is not what we can do right now, which, you know, once we got everything working, it was kind of a hooray moment that it looked so slick and everything worked so well. And, you know, after such a long time, because we, we found a Taikan in 2017 and we've done, uh, you know, work with uh, humanitarian organizations on different platforms, uh, such as uh, the one-to-one platform. Uh, which you can find on 121.global, that's numeric 121, um, okay. uh, with the uh, Dutch Red Cross and uh, some other humanitarian organizations. Uh, but this one, you know, was, was ours. Um, and it was, you know, also our effort in making it uh, so intuitive. And it, it was certainly exciting to see it come to fruition uh, to the point where it is now. But also there's so much still to be done within SSI, you know, it's, it's so early still because everything is still largely smartphone centric. And I think that ultimately um, there is, there has to be some nuance uh, within SSI as well. I know there are a lot of purists who think, or yeah, are of the opinion that it can only be done in one way or should only be done one way, because that's the only way to, to get a hundred percent privacy out of it. But also, you know, the, the credentials that we have and and the data that we produce it th- there's a sliding scale of how of, of the weight of it uh, and and the assurance of it and how how important that data is so i think you know what what we're going to see is uh, a lot more web based wallets um, uh, browser wallets uh, a feature phone <laughs> that's a big one i mean we're talking about smartphones, but ultimately, if you don't want to leave a huge population group behind, you know, there's, uh, I think, 740 million people, sub-Saharan Africa, who use feature phones only. It has to work for that as well. And a lot of these things, I think, mental model-wise, we're still very caught up in how does this work on paper and then still translating that into the digital world, where a lot of things will likely be able to be automated. Uh, where someone can just uh, do a check and you just give your consent and they can check off a lot of verification processes instead of you having to 
push and send it, they can make a pull request of sorts. Uh, for instance, if you go through a mortgage application and you know now I need to uh, I need to go to the accountant and get my pay slips and I need to go to Khalid to attest to me working for Taiken and I need to you know do all these things where instead you know I could just tell my mortgage advisor either you know go to this link and you can uh, pull that information with my consent. Uh, or they can just do that themselves to uh, at a certain location. So I think a lot of these models are going to be changing and there's a lot that's going to be happening in the next couple of years that's very exciting. And my hope is that in 10 years, we take all of this for granted <laughs> or everyone everyone around us takes yeah. all of this for granted and all this hard work we've been doing, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's basically forgotten uh, and that people just use it as part of their normal life. Yeah, elaborating on that, uh, Tim, I mean, um, we used to say, like, you know, I can give you an identity, but the the crux here is what, you're, what are you going to do with it? So, you know, enabling access to services such as education, healthcare, uh, banking, etc. That's like the main, the main uh, objective. Um, I just want to elaborate also on the point, you know, you, you mentioned, Tim, that, you know, we get a lot of, uh, you know, questions about, you know, uh, guys, this is, you're so technology focused, uh, but there are a plethora of other problems that you, you need to solve as well. Like, you know, when it comes to politics, you know, legal, it comes to other, you know, uh, things that actually, you know, help contribute to make it like complete. So you could, you know, solve the problem from different uh, perspectives. But at least, you know, if we, can tackle the technology side, which is always, like you said, as a catalyst or an enabler, then then that's like, you know, a stepping stone to solve all the other uh, problems that uh, are also interlinked with, with, with this, uh, with this identity uh, uh, problem, as we say. I agree. Like I, a couple of points, like uh, what Jimmy was saying, like if we do this right, I've been saying that digital identities should be as exciting as safe drinking water. Nobody should care about it. It just, it just, it just, um, it just works. You, you uh, turn on the tap, you can drink from the tap and you, you don't think anything of it, but when it, when it becomes contaminated, you, you want it, you want to solve that quickly. You want to know, is it the actual pipes or is it the water source? Um, but at the end of the day, I, I would say di digital identity or self-sovereign identity should not be any different than what we take for granted for for safe drinking water and the other, the other point i want to make too is while the the smartphone is a predominant form factor um we mm. can't make any presumptions in the future what those form factors are going to be there's probably going to be different special purpose devices and that's where i've been working really hard on conceptualizing what might be the generic model underneath that um, that works equally well for a smartphone or, or or an internet of thing device and really understanding at the end of the day um uh, what exactly do we need to trust? And uh, some of the work that I'm doing with some innovation projects, we're, 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 we're focusing on that and I'm hoping to see some more uh, insights in that in the future. So I, how, how do you actually see things evolving in the shorter and longer run? And not only so much from the technology, but how the these digital ecosystems um, are going to evolve versus the digital platform providers. Like um, clearly you, you've got something really cool with Anna, but it's got to exist within a larger digital ecosystem that involves governments and the big players like the Googles and the Facebooks and the, 
you know, Microsofts, et cetera. I'm just, just curious, like how, how you see yourself fitting into uh, that larger picture in the shorter run and in the longer run. And, you know, if, if there's any geopolitical implications that you've thought about, uh, I'd be really keen to get your perspective on how you see this evolving over the yeah, long it's, run. Yeah, it's good to be realistic about these things as well. And I hope we, we haven't been uh, promoting SSI as some sort of uh, silver bullet because there are still quite a few um, hurdles to overcome uh, for now and, and in the future especially in terms of um, user experience, but also the, the privacy and, you know, the, the data parts, because I, I feel sometimes uh, what, what, I, uh, what I see from, from some of our peers that, and, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of it too, that, that we kind of live in a, in a bubble um, because we talk about identity all day and we talk about the technology and we talk about SSI, and that we forget a lot of the real world implications, which, uh, you know, often it's a, a government saying, okay, this is very cool. I love it. Where's the red button? Where's the back door? Uh, <laughs> at what point can I just, you know, go snoop into everyone's uh, data? And then also on the other side, there's a, a lot of money in, in data. And th there's a lot of, you know, these companies, they're not going to, you know, just put those models aside. And a lot of the applications of, of SSI nowadays, they're kind of counterpoint to that. While I think that in the future, it should coexist. You know, we, we've also been talking to certain uh, companies who then ask like, okay, but how does this mix with our analytics? Um, how does this you know, it there's there's always going to be that question of uh, okay, how can we get all the right benefits of this without completely turning around our business model? Which of course they're not going to do. So I think we're going to see a bit less on the the purest views and a bit more flexibility towards coexisting with current models, which will still be better than the status quo. Honestly, I don't think that anywhere on the short term or long term we're going to reach that you know that utopia we envision where we all have control over our own uh, data and, and control ownership and because we've talked to larger organizations commercial and governmental who are absolutely not going to give that up um that the, there's there is absolutely no way and i think that there needs to be a, a hint of realism there um for the the whole technological movement to, to progress because of course it's good to have that, that that big vision of what it can be and you know the standards we should be trying to reach in terms of privacy but we also have to be realistic in our constraints uh, and try to do better than what, what we have now try to do better than the status quo and of course we try to go as far as we can but ultimately we also have the to change needs to happen systematically and incrementally right so it's um just speaking from from Titan's point of view, we, we I mean we have been lobbying for with for example policymakers you know uh, from top down uh, government uh, uh, officials you know how this new way of of of, of managing uh, personal data actually could you know be a, of a benefit, but at the same time as a startup you you need to to look at the 
you know, the, the low barrier uh, use cases where people really understand, I have here a problem and how can, could you solve that for me? If it's about job inclusion, how can we solve, how can we help, for example, a matchmaker or a recruiter, you know, get those credentials very quickly, easily, and just, you know, with, with a click of a button, I know that your skills are uh, being certified or verified by this uh, this uh, um, by this um, organization, for instance. So I, th I think those those low hanging fruit use cases really help. But the systematic change needs to go to happen in the long run. And and of course we need still always to educate, talk, lobby with the policymakers as we do that. And, and that's where I'm hoping to play a role again. Uh, I, I, I work for the government and I'll, I'll qualify. I'm not speaking on behalf of the government with this uh, podcast, but the technology is one part of the equation. The institutional change is another part of the equation and trying to make the policymakers or the senior decision makers understand the, um, the implications and the potential. And the one, the one way I've been describing it is I remember attending a security workshop a, a couple of years back and, you know, at the end, you know, it was all about better information sharing. We need to sh share more information and, and, you know, it just seemed like it was all about let's, how, how do we integrate the backend systems better so we can surveil better? And I was like, oh, that's not the way things should be done. It should, uh, we should be enabling individuals to present their own digital proofs under their own term, uh, under their own term. So if you show up at a, a gate to go across a border, um, yeah. to do a border crossing, you should be able to present that you, you can actually go across and have the proofs on your phone and that they actually, or your phone, or it could be a other device, uh, but done in a way it doesn't have to call back to the mothership to see uh, where you were five minutes before. And just by getting those new mental models in place and having the policymakers um, understand that there's a different way of doing things. And, you know, within the Canadian context, what we're trying to promote, and again, uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of government, is that try to let's try to take the, as I said, the, uh, the uh, technology out of trust and let's focus on being those issuers and verifiers and ensuring the holders have the information that they have to do whatever they need to do, whether it be applying for a job or crossing a border or applying for school and look at the model a little bit differently and say, maybe this is what we need to focus on more as governments or as authorities and let the technology develop in a way that it enables the security and privacy, but done in a way that's uh, ver verifiable. Um, you know, that's a term that you're hearing more. When I say verifiable, it's all it's all guaranteed um, via uh, uh, the cryptographic uh, primitives that that enable that. So, just looking at it uh, a little bit differently, and then dividing up the problem into the the technical and the institutional um, aspect. So, with that, I, I think we'll we'll start wrapping up. And I, uh, Jamie and Khalid, I really appreciate you taking time to. Uh, um, uh, talk with me on uh, on the podcast here. Really, really appreciate it, and I'm totally um, excited about the work that you're doing. And I totally uh, agree that this is a start of a very, very long journey, but a very long and positive journey. So, before we wrap up, um, where can our listeners um, find more about you, um, your website or your Twitter yeah. handle. So any, any details that you can provide us so they can easily um, find you. And then I'll, I'll oh, post that in awesome. the show notes yeah. as well. I'd say uh, our website, tyken.tech, that's T-Y-K-N.tech, T-E-C-H. There's also, if you want to know more about uh, Self-Sovereign Identity SSI, 
you recently posted uh, a great beginner's guide. I think we actually call it the ultimate beginner's guide for self-sovereign identity, uh, which you can find on our on our website under blogs or either or otherwise at tycon.tech slash self dash sovereign dash identity. Um, Twitter at tycon uh, underscore tech. Uh, and yeah, uh, thank you a lot, Tim, for having us on. Uh, really <laughs> love the the show, and uh, thank you for making time for having thank us. Thank you on. for inviting us. I really enjoyed this uh, podcast. You have you have to go to your website to see the blog entries. They're really great. Like the ultimate guide that you put up is outstanding and um, shameless self promotion. You interviewed me about six months yeah. ago, so it's a really nice blog <laughs> That's entry. That's true. Yeah, and, and you you've interviewed a lot of the leading lights uh, in, in 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 this space. So uh, I, I view that it's a, it's almost like a public service that you're providing and enabling people to to know more about what's going on in the space. So thanks again, Jimmy and Khalid. And uh, this is another episode of Definitely Identity. <laughs> <laughs>